1: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit slash awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com.
2: When Diplomacy Fails presents the July Crisis Anniversary Project. A day by day account. ...of the events that occurred... ...100 years ago. End of Innocence. Today is the 29th of July 2014... ...and on this day in history 100 years ago... ...occurred the following events... At 8 a.m. on this day 100 years ago, the French Prime Minister and President were finally inside of the French shore. At last, a twinkling light beneath a roof, a house, dockyards, masts, a gradually emerging skyline, Dunkirk, remarked the French Prime Minister, René Viviani, as the French vessel that had brought them from St. Petersburg to Stockholm and back again pulled in. Despite both statesmen, Wanting to avoid the planned welcoming committee, and in fact cancelling it to save on time, the two were greeted by a large crowd nonetheless that had gathered to await the arrival of the French leaders. With cries of, Vive la France, and Vive Poincaré, the French president, though hardly someone one could accuse of pacifist feeling, was taken aback. What struck me, Poincaré noted, was that many people here seemed to think war imminent, All along the way, as the train passed each station, crowds had gathered, expressing similar greetings, that France would value peace, but that she would fight if necessary. With showings like these, Raymond Poincaré and René Viviani were even more anxious to arrive in Paris, and be brought properly up to speed on events. As he boarded the train with the Prime Minister, Poincaré was informed of the Austrian declaration of war on Serbia, that had taken place the day before. Concerns abounded as to what France would do, what Germany would do and what, if anything, Russia had done. With the deficiencies of communications at sea being what they were in 1914, Viviani and Poincaré did not know the full extent of Russian actions, that their ally had been in the period preparatory to war for days. However, Viviani had been informed by the stand-in French Foreign Minister in Paris on the 26th of July that Russia planned to partially mobilise 13 Army Corps against Vienna if Vienna were to bring armed pressure to bear on Serbia. And that, Russian public opinion affirms its determination to not let Serbia be crushed. Viviani had responded to this news by contacting Maurice Paleolog, France's ambassador to Russia, and ordering him to tell the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Sazanov, that France was... "...ready to wholeheartedly second the action of the Russian imperial government." Although Viviani had significantly inserted the additional... In the interests of general peace. Having heard little back, both the pacifist Viviani and the doggedly determined Poncaré needed to be brought up to speed, and France's their statesmen did their best. The French Undersecretary of State had collected, according to Viviani, an enormous pile of unopened telegrams to sift through. The Under Secretary also informed them of the mobilization of 100,000 crack troops in French Algeria and Morocco that were awaiting shipment to the coast of southern France. Poincaré was taken aback again by this, but the revelations weren't over yet. Though the Under Secretary didn't know the extent of Russian preparations, he passed them on to the French Minister of War when the duo reached the capital. Adolphe Messimy, the French Minister of War in 1912, and in fact only for a brief window in 1914 greeted the duo off their train in Paris with the excited words, You are going to see Paris! It is magnificent! Messamy guided Poincaré and Viviani through the station, and out into the open air, where yet another crowd awaited the duo. For a French public who, the days before, had been divided over the Calot affair, hearing such unity must have been music to Poincaré's ears. He described the scene, I was greeted by an overwhelming demonstration, which moved me to the depths of my being. Many people had tears in their eyes, and I could hardly hold back my own. From thousands of throats arose repeated shouts of "Vive la France! Eh? Vive la Republique! Vive le President!" From the station, the cheering never stopped. Here was a united France. Political quarrels were forgotten. How far away the Callo affair seemed now! What different matters now claim public attention? The Russian ambassador to France, Alexander Izvolsky, arrived to brief the duo at eleven fifteen a.m. Izvolsky shared with both the telegram sent by Sazanov the day before, in which the Russian foreign minister announced Russia's partial mobilisation in response to Austria's declaration of war against Serbia. He also notified the two about Sazanov's telegram to the Russian ambassador in London, in which Sazanov urged Britain to mediate. Throughout, Izvalsky did not inform either man of the real facts. That Russia had mobilized to such an extent by the 29th that it merely remained to call the Russian actions what they were. Nor did he tell the Jew of his own influence in spurring the process along, in a conversation he had had with France's Minister of War, Adolphe Massamy, and the French Chief of State the night before, in which cables were sent to St. Petersburg and had assured Sazenov of French support, which only egged the Russian on to further the process. As far as Poncaré and Viviani could ascertain, Izvolsky had painted for them a picture whereby Austria had attacked Serbia the day before, where she had responded on that day to defend its ally with precautionary military measures, but these preparations would likely come to nothing, and indeed would take some time to actually achieve anything in the Russian Colossus, but failing all this, a British proposal for mediation would end this new war before it escalated anyone's tensions. In any case, Poincaré was confident that the French Republic, aware of the declaration of war and the atmosphere, would support a defensive war. But Poincaré was being drip-fed an incomplete story. Izvolsky had failed to mention that Russia had been mobilising since the 25th of July, that significant preparations had been made, and that Sazonov was not trying to scare Vienna, he was angling for an apparent conflict between the Austro-German alliance, which Britain, isolated and with their eyes on Ireland, would have little pull in mediating. Though Viviani wanted peace, he spent the day at the 29th, when he finally arrived back home after a fortnight on foreign duty, he focused more on Austria than he did on his ally, with the result that he remained in the dark, as did the President, as to the full nature of Russia's moves. This time, though, his misinformation wasn't because of faulty communications on his ship but German Chancellor Bethmann Hollweg wasn't doing all that much better. Although he was largely up to speed with events on the continent, he was doing a poor job keeping Wilhelm II in the loop. He perhaps didn't have the heart or guts to tell Wilhelm that he had torpedoed his proposal for mediation with the uncompromising version of Wilhelm II's Halt in Belgrade proposal that the Kaiser had developed following his reading of the Serbian reply to the Austrian ultimatum the day before. Though he seemed content to avoid Wilhelm, he couldn't avoid the German Chief of Staff von Malka, who provided the Chancellor with a depressing picture of what was to come for Germany, if the events took their course. The instant Austria mobilizes her whole army, the clash between her and Russia will become inevitable. Unless Germany manages to break her word and allow her ally to succumb to Russia's superior strength, she must also mobilize. This will lead to the mobilization of Russia's remaining districts. The Franco-Russian agreement thereby comes into operation, and the civilized states of Europe will tear each other to pieces. This is the way things will and must develop, unless, one might almost say, a miracle takes place in the last hour to prevent a war that will annihilate the civilization of almost all of Europe for decades to come. Although the day before, Erich von Falkenhayn, the Prussian Minister of War, had persuaded Bethmann to issue limited precautionary military measures such as the stockpiling of grain, keeping troops in garrison, and increasing railway security, mobilisation was of yet far too strong a word for the German measures. Certainly they were far short of what Russia had undertaken in its period preparatory to war, and if Germany wanted to pull back from the course alluded to by Maltke, then they could. The question was, should Germany pull back? If Germany did not prepare itself properly for the upcoming war, if it did not make the necessary decisions, then the entire German war plan would be sacrificed if war did in fact occur, and, as Moltke clearly believed, unless a miracle of some kind occurred, war was on the horizon. Yet even at this late stage in the game, the chief of staff was adamant that Germany would not engage in mobilisation. When Bethman summoned Moltke and Falkenhayn to his office after he had read Moltke's depressing memorandum on the course of events, at around 11am on the 29th of July, the same time that the French President and Prime Minister were greeting the crowds of Paris, the positions of the three men were made clear. Bethman, supported by Moltke, wanted to pause, to wait and see and above all not to undertake any mobilization measures that could be construed by Russia or others as an aggravation. The Minister of War, Falkenhayn, on the other hand, wanted to increase the tensions by declaring the immediate danger of war, a state akin to Russia's period preparatory to war, but more serious, since general mobilization was built into the plan and would automatically occur within two days of it being declared. Falkenhayn complained that Malka would not go further than giving military protection to important railway key points. But the chancellor and the chief of staff were still drawn to the Halt in Belgrade idea, which had proposed that Austria occupy the Serb capital until Belgrade complied with the terms of the ultimatum. Or was that the terms of the original Serbian reply? Or was that the terms of a new negotiated settlement between Austria and Serbia? At this stage, not even the chancellor was sure. Yet Bethmann was sure of one thing, he wanted peace and to avoid the situation escalating, but the similarly disposed Maltka was getting concerned that if Germany said nothing and merely awaited British approval of a conference, then she would miss out on her chance to affect the situation. So Bethmann made the seemingly wise decision to send wires off to St. Petersburg and Paris, where his two ambassadors were waiting. The messages he sent them were meant to awaken Russia and calm France, but instead they appeared like blunt threats. The German ambassador to France was told to inform the French government that the danger of war rather than immediate danger of war had been declared, which was far less than mobilisation, as the ambassador pointed out. This was done, the ambassador explained, because of France's mobilisation, which Germany's ambassador claimed was escalating the situation and drawing counter-reactions. In St. Petersburg, meanwhile, Ambassador Portale was asked to "...please impress upon Sazanov very seriously that further progress of Russian mobilisation measures would compel us to mobilise, and that European war could then be scarcely prevented." Bethmann's words were doing him no favours. The day after he had ruined the chances for the halt in Belgrade idea actually working, because he refused to acknowledge Serbia's wish to negotiate on the terms of the ultimatum, the German Chancellor was now apparently threatening Russia, That if Germany did mobilise, it would lead, unless some miracle, as Moltke put it, occurred, to general war. Portolet's delivery of Bethmann's wire to Sazanov probably wouldn't have created such a huge fuss in St. Petersburg, though, if the Russian foreign minister hadn't been informed an hour before he saw the German ambassador that Austria-Hungary, the day after declaring war, had begun shelling Belgrade. On the evening of the previous day, when Austria had declared war on Serbia and Bethmann's chances for localization appeared lesser by the hour, the Chancellor had persuaded the Kaiser that he should send a letter to his third cousin and implore him to not let the situation escalate, that he was trying to mediate for Vienna and rein the Habsburgs in, and that if he valued their friendship, he would allow him time to do so and not jeopardize his role as mediator by doing something provocative, such as increasing Russia's military preparations. As Wilhelm wrote, Nicholas II of Russia was also writing too, informing Wilhelm of how upset Russian opinion was at the news of war against Serbia. As he put it, "...an ignoble war has been declared to a weak country. The indignation in Russia, shared fully by me, is enormous. I foresee that very soon I shall be overwhelmed by the pressure forced upon me, and be forced to take extreme measures which will lead to war." To try and avoid such a calamity as a European war, I beg you in the name of our old friendship to do what you can to stop your allies from going too far. Since Wilhelm's telegram had also been sent roughly 45 minutes beforehand, after 1am on the twenty-ninth, the two crossed over and were read only the next day. Wilhelm himself replied to Nicholas's first telegram that he could not consider the war between Serbia and Austria an ignoble one since the pressure exerted by Austria was required to force Serbia into compliance with the terms, since Belgrade, effectively, couldn't be trusted to fulfil its obligations, as per the terms. But Wilhelm also made the considerable remark that, I think a direct understanding between your government and Vienna possible and desirable, and as I already telegraphed to you, my government is continuing its exercises to promote it. Of course, military measures on the part of Russia would be looked upon by Austria as a calamity we both wished to avoid, and jeopardize my position as a mediator, which I readily accepted on your appeal to my friendship and help." Although Wilhelm sent this telegram at 6.30pm on the evening of July twenty ninth, it would not actually reach Nicholas until the very late evening of that day, when a seriously momentous event was occurring in the upper Russian military circles. As per the first telegram that Wilhelm had sent to Nicholas, in which Wilhelm made his original promise to act as mediator, Portelet called on Sazanov at around 11am on the 29th of July. At a time when the French President and Prime Minister were arriving in Paris, and Germany's VIPs were discussing the finer points of Moltke's predictions, Sazanov was meeting with the German ambassador to talk about Austria. Portolet urged Sazanov not to undertake any measures, such as mobilisation, which would hurt the peace process. Apparently Portolais had not been informed of the decision to partially mobilise that was made the day before, and in reply Sazanov pointed to Austrian mobilisation, which Portolais then pointed out was directed at Serbia and not Russia, and that by mobilising against Austria, St. Petersburg was escalating the situation and standing in the way of negotiations. In light of this, Sazanov called in his advisers when the German left the room, and debated at length about whether Germany was genuine about its aims to mediate or whether Berlin just wanted to buy time for its own military machine, and that of its ally, to increase their own preparedness. At 5pm, Sazonov learned of Austria shelling Belgrade. Although no actual manoeuvres occurred and the event was over within an hour, it was a reminder to Europe that two countries were now at war, and that the war would not be silent while they danced around one another. It was a wake-up call for Sazanov too, who was convinced of the German hand in the move and was even more so when Portolais returned at 6pm holding Bethmann's ill-advised wire about the need of Russia to stand down, lest European war would occur. In this atmosphere it caused a sensation in Sazonov, who saw this new stance of the ambassador, apparently threatening war, as one completely opposite to the previous stance of one keen to arbitrate, with no desire for conflict in any case. Now, Sazonov had proof that Germany's ally was attacking its own, and that unless they backed down, they would face consequences. Portelay argued that that wasn't what was said in the wire, but Sazonov saw what he wanted to see, and what Bethlehem had made it very easy for him to see. Sazonov promptly took out his frustrations on the unfortunate Portelay, who had only found out about the Austrian attack on Belgrade earlier in the day. Vienna had not made it their business to tell their ally about their actions despite the implications such actions could, and did, have on the negotiations in their name.
0: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love.
2: Moritz Schilling, as Sazanov's undersecretary, was in the room when the two statesmen confronted each other. Schilling records that Sazanov said, I no longer have any real doubts about the real cause of Austrian intransigence, which led Ledport later reply that, I protest with all my power, Mr. Minister, against this injurious assertion. Schilling recorded that Sazanov replied dryly that, Germany still had an opportunity for proving the erroneousness of what he had said. After being faced with two pieces of a puzzle that seemed to fit too well together, Sazonov, unfortunately for the whole process, believed more readily in the possibility that Germany was egging on Austria to attack Belgrade, which would stand as a sign to the world and the Entente, while Germany personally warned Russia not to get involved or the situation would escalate. As has been said, the wording of the wire Bethmann sent off could have been interpreted as the kind of strong stance that Bethmann had been required to display to Russia all this time, but because of the timing it proved catastrophic. Determined to see the hand of Germany in all Austria did, in part mainly because of his refusal to see Austria-Hungary as an independent player in the Balkans, Sazonov became even more discouraged from following the route of negotiation with either of the central powers. What is more, in a conversation with the Tsar over the phone, Sazonov informed Nicholas of what Portolay had said. The Tsar claimed that this didn't match up with Wilhelm's very first telegram sent just after 1 a.m. today, in which the Kaiser had vowed to exert his utmost influence to induce the Austrians to deal straightly, to arrive to a satisfactory understanding with you. So the Tsar sent Wilhelm a telegram to ask what was up as well as proposing the Tsar's pet idea of the Hague Mediation Conference. Thanks for your telegram, conciliatory and friendly, whereas official message presented today by your ambassador to my minister was conveyed in a very different tone. Beg you to explain this divergency. It would be right to give over the Austro-Serbian problem to the Hague Conference. Trust in your wisdom and friendship. But Wilhelm wouldn't get this telegram until later on. As of yet, he had only replied to Nicholas's original telegram in his 6.30 reply that day. Only now did this 6.30 reply reach Nicholas, and because of its tone and speed it gave Nicholas pause for thought at such a crucial time. Less than an hour before receiving the telegram from the German Emperor, Nicholas II had given the go-ahead for general mobilization. It would be a time before the orders came into effect, but they were already being transmitted when Wilhelm's telegram arrived at 9.40pm. It continued the argument from the previous telegram over the issue of an ignoble war, but its concluding paragraph was the most effective. As if knowing the exact state of mind that the Tsar was in at the time, it stated, I think a direct understanding between your government and Vienna possible and desirable, and as I already telegraphed to you, my government is continuing its exercises to promote it. Of course, military measures on the part of Russia would be looked upon by Austria as a calamity we both wished to avoid, as well as jeopardise my position as mediator, which I readily accepted on your appeal to my friendship and my help. Moved that his cousin Willie had replied so quickly, and getting cold feet owing to his own hatred of war, Nicholas cancelled the order for general mobilisation. It was a seriously close shave that just as the Russian Tsar was contemplating making the first move, he was pulled back by a last minute message from the German Emperor, whose genuine desire for peace and to mediate contrasts again sharply with the traditional Kaiser caricatures. Claiming that, I will not be held responsible for a monstrous slaughter. At around 10pm on the 29th of July, the Tsar cancelled Russia's march towards war that had seemed so inevitable, but it was merely a stay of execution. Along with other German VIPs, Bethmann attended a serious meeting on Wednesday afternoon to discuss the situation. The consensus remained that so long as the Halton Belgrade proposal existed, calling for outright mobilization was premature. The meeting went badly in general for Bethmann. His proposals for ensuring British neutrality by turning the German navy over to Britain did nothing for the Kaiser's confidence in him but it was when he left the meeting and returned to his office between 7 and 8pm that he was greeted by a new series of shocking reports which were waiting for him on his desk. A telegram had come in from port at around 3pm, which had urgently informed Bethman that Russia's partial mobilisation had begun. Just minutes later, a wire had come in from the military attaché in St. Petersburg, stating that In the Tsar's entourage, a general war was regarded as almost inevitable. At around 4pm, the German General Staff had passed a report onto Bethmann's office, which detailed the worrying extent of Russia's preparation for war. This was accompanied by the additionally worrying news that Belgium had called a preservist's, strengthened and armed fortresses, and prepared bridges for demolition. In the meantime, two telegrams from Lichnowsky in London painted a disturbingly murky picture of British intentions but claimed that Italy would not fight, and that? There is a firm conviction here that, failing the readiness on the part of Austria to enter into a discussion on the Serbian question, world war will be inevitable. Since the ramifications of even partial Russian mobilisation could throw German plans out of whack, Bethmann recognised that he would have to call a meeting of Germany's military chiefs, along with the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Gottlieb von Yagov, for emergency session that night. Although Sazanov's claim that partial mobilisation didn't mean war was discounted as a lie by Falkenhayn, the Prussian Minister of War, Bethmann for his part was determined that the onus for starting the war would not fall on Germany. He argued that England would not be able to side with Russia if Russia unleashed a general war by an attack on Austria and thus took on her shoulders the guilt for the whole smash-up. Bethmann thus upheld that Germany's equivalent to Russia's period preparatory to war should not be called yet, so that London would see that it was Russia, not Germany, that was making the moves towards war. Bethmann had so far persuaded the Chief of Staff Maltke and the Minister of War Falkenhayn to wait. He was able to do so because of a strange piece of news that had filtered in from the British royal family, which had in fact been communicated by Wilhelm's brother, Henry. On the 26th of July, as Prince Henry had prepared to leave Britain, he had a conversation with King George V, in which George suggested that he wanted to keep his country out of the war. Prince Henry claimed that George had said, We shall try and keep out of this, and we shall remain neutral, and cabled Wilhelm as soon as he reached Kiel Harbour on the 28th of July to notify him. When Henry reached the meeting in which Bethmann and the Kaiser and others were debating German policy, the meeting that precluded Bethmann's subsequent trip to his office and the revealing of so much bad news, he had reiterated this conversation again. Wilhelm viewed George's statement, if indeed he did say it, as a declaration of British policy. "'I have the word of a king,' Wilhelm upheld, "'and that is good enough for me.' Whatever George had, in fact, said, Wilhelm now became positive that he could ensure British neutrality. Without the concrete guarantee that the sacrificing of the fleet would bring, this conversation and assurance was all that the Chancellor now had. The news had encouraged Bethman to go out on a limb and call in the British Ambassador to Germany, Sir Edward Gotchen, on this night 100 years ago. Although he had had a pretty awful day and was no doubt exhausted, Bethmann's meeting with the Brit began well enough. If Germany was forced to mobilise, Bethmann told the ambassador, because of a Russian attack on Austria, it may, to his great regret, render European conflagration inevitable. If this happened, Bethmann noted that he hoped Great Britain would remain neutral. Such assertions were not out of the ordinary, and indeed gave Ambassador Gotchen little to object to. But then Bethmann kept talking because he believed that Britain wanted something in return for its neutrality. The Chancellor promised that, in the event of the victorious war, Germany aimed at no territorial acquisitions at the expense of France. In itself, this was a harmless pledge, but it opened up Bethmann to a new batch of questions about German intentions. Ambassador Gotchen asked, since Bethmann had brought it up, Then if not France, what about her colonies? The Chancellor seemed, incredibly, unable to guarantee that Berlin would not take them. When asked about the Netherlands, Bethmann said that he was ready to assure the British government that Germany would respect the neutrality and integrity of Holland as long as they were respected by Germany's adversaries. Gotchin then brought up the point of Belgium, since it was hard to mention one of the Low Countries and not the other, as Bethmann had in fact done, which suggested that something was going on. As regards Belgium, Gotchen reported Bethmann had said, he could not tell to what operations Germany might be forced by the actions, but he could tell that, provided that Belgium did not take action against Germany, her integrity would be respected after the conclusion of the war. The significance of these remarks by Bethman, who was trying to co-opt Britain's neutrality rather than inflame British opinion, sought to undermine his genuine intentions. It was these comments that led the British Prime Minister Asquith to note that, There is something very crude and almost childlike about the German diplomacy. By proving unable to guarantee Belgian integrity or the sovereignty of France's colonies, Bethmann had made Germany appear as the ambitious aggressor in Gottschall's dispatch home. Bethmann then received further bad news when he received another wire from Leknovsky, which noted the comments Sir Edward Grey had made at 6pm that evening, on what would happen if the mediations failed and if an Austro-Russian clash over Serbia in Germany and France. Gray told Lichnowsky that the British government would be forced into taking rapid decisions in this case it would not do to stand aside and wait. This comment, received by Bethman barely an hour after he had placed his hopes in British neutrality and then blundered his way through meeting with Gostian in support of it dashed the Chancellor's hopes and proved to him that Britain would not remain neutral after all. Sir Edward Grey was in fact fighting his own battles in London. Having gotten little sleep and under immense stress himself from the Irish crisis, Grey was faced with a cabinet meltdown if he chose one side too heavily over the other. Within the British government were those opposed to any kind of intervention on the continent. These men made up the majority, but were in less important positions than those like Grey, who called for a strong British hand in continental affairs, and for standing by France a policy reflective of their own Francophile sentiments. If Grey abandoned France and Russia, he would face loud resignations from key members in his cabinet, including Churchill, who at this stage was trying to mobilise the fleet. However, if he made a show of engaging in a forceful British policy, then the murmurs of cabinet backbenchers in the background could cause the entire government to collapse. Grey thus had to find some middle ground or find a way of saying what he needed to say without making it sound like a firm step in one direction or the other. But until he gathered the courage and energy to take this course, Grey was forced largely to wait and see where the tides of British politics would go. This, combined with his own misinformation of events and the Irish crisis, created a lethal three-tier cocktail which ensured British inaction up until the last minutes of the July crisis, and ensured that... In this case, as one historian put it, Sir Edward Grey had, in effect, impaled Bethmann on the horns of Britain's own policy dilemma. Bethmann was staring war in the face, and having just seen his last reed of hope in British neutrality apparently vanish, felt compelled to save the peace. He wiredly Leopold von Berchtold in Vienna, this time demanding that Austria accept a four-power mediation proposal without any reservations in the interests of peace. Bethmann emphasised that if Austria did not go along with this proposal, then the Central Powers would be faced with a conflagration in which England will go against us, Italy and Romania to all appearances will not go with us, and we should be two against four powers. Bethmann sent this historically significant message to Vienna at 2.55am in the early hours of the 30th of July, and five minutes later he sent another one to the German ambassador to Vienna, demanding that Austria resume its talks with Russia saying that Germany was, "...prepared to fulfill its duties as an ally, but must decline to let ourselves be dragged by Vienna, wantonly and without regard to our advice, into a world conflagration. In the Italian question too, Vienna seems to disregard our advice. Pray speak to Count Burchtold at once, with great emphasis and most seriously." In sending these cables over the night of the 29th to the 30th of July, Bethmann was effectively rescinding the blank cheque. Because he demonstrated that German support had its limits, and that Vienna now had to pull itself back from this disaster and make whatever moves were necessary for peace. But it was now too late. Although Bethmann did not know the full extent of Russia's mobilization procedures, his ambassador in St. Petersburg, Portalei, did, and Sazonov called him in at around midnight for a meeting, where the Russian foreign minister hoped to throw the German off the scent of Russian actions. Of course, the Tsar had only recently stopped an order for full mobilisation, so the dishonesty present in Sazonov's audience with Portolais is notable, but not unusual. Because Sazonov didn't state that Russia had tried, hours before, to mobilise for war against Portolais's country, the German had no idea what he was getting himself into. Sazonov presented the meeting like a last ditch attempt to mediate between Petersburg and Vienna, while not discussing Russia's own military preparations. Portelet, aware of Russian partial but not the earlier thwarted plans for general mobilization, commented that it was difficult, if not impossible, for Germany to pressure Austria now that Russia has taken the fateful step towards mobilization. Sazonov tried to change the subject to Serbia, but Portelet brought it back to Russia, so Sazonov rate the issue of Wilhelm's telegram to Nicholas and how it had contrasted sharply with the threats present in Bethmann's wire the same day. Portolet declared that it was the German Emperor's prerogative to try and negotiate for peace, and that either way, Bethmann's earlier telegram had contained no threat but a mere friendly warning about Germany's alliance obligations, and the fact that if Russia did mobilise against Austria, then of course Germany would be honour and treaty bound to assist her. Now, it was Sazonov's turn to lose his cool. Just before 1.30am, he told Portolet point-blank that reversing the mobilisation order was no longer possible. And that, Austrian mobilisation was to blame. At the Peterhof Palace, Nicholas II was revealing the exact same insider info to Wilhelm in his latest order of telegrams to Willy that he sent at one twenty am Thank you heartily for your quick answer. The military measures which have now come into force were decided five days ago for reasons of defence on account of Austria's military preparations. I hope from all my heart that these measures won't in any way interfere with your part as a mediator, which I greatly value. We need your strong pressure on Austria to come to an understanding with us." When Wilhelm and his statesmen were to read this telegram, combined with Portolais' wires from St. Petersburg, about the conversation he just had with Sazonov, the scales would fall from Germany's eyes. After fumbling in the dark for so long, Germany would hear it from the horse's mouth, that, far from merely reacting to the general increase in tension or seeking to advance mediation proposals, Russia had in fact undergone its own pre-war preparations in secret, and had been readying its forces for war against the central powers for the past five days.